This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and with me here at Mizzou today is Dr. Rochelle Gutierrez, who's a professor in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Rochelle, thanks so much for being here. It's good to be here. We are going to be talking across Rochelle's career in mathematics education, and we're going to start back at the very beginning. So I'm curious, what was it that led to you entering the field of mathematics education and particularly going into higher education? Actually, it, it was a little bit serendipitous. I have a degree in biology. I was working at Stanford Hospital and was applying to medical schools at the time. I had one course left to take uh, to fulfill my well-roundedness as a student uh, at Stanford, and there was a requirement I had to take that was either art history or art religion something, and there was a class that a professor offered, Elliot Eisner, that was called Art, the Artistic Development of the Child. Hmm. And it, it was a course I had to take to graduate, so I, the only version of it that I could take was a graduate seminar. So I signed up for the seminar. We fought all the time in this seminar because he and I did not have the same views, but I would talk to him in office hours. To make a very long story short, we got to know each other better, and I came to understand his perspectives. He came to understand mine, and he said to me, you know, Rochelle, you would make a really good doctor. You're very detail-oriented. You're very analytic. You're intelligent. He said, but why don't you try something really hard, like education? (laughs) And nobody had ever really talked to me about education in that way. I mean, all my free time, I was always tutoring other kids in Upward Bound and and helping other kids with their math. And and I hadn't really, you know, I was supposed to be the one who was going to go be the Latina doctor from my family, and Mm. I hadn't thought about it. So well, right then I started applying to some schools in education, but I uh, started teaching in a program at Stanford in migrant education, and I was teaching mathematics, and it was one of those things where the light bulb just, it was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So uh, so I taught for, for a bit and then applied for programs and got into the University of Chicago. So it was a little bit, I hadn't intended to do a PhD right away. It was mm-hmm. uh, one of those things that I got accepted into the program and, and just went. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's definitely a more unique story than it's typical <laughs> to, to be that close to one certain profession and yeah. then kind of going off. And So you mentioned uh, the University of Chicago. So tell me a little bit about what grad school was like there at the University of Chicago. Um, this was like in the early to mid-90s, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, then what did you end up focusing on for your dissertation? Mm-hmm. So I did know in terms of going into math education that something that was important to me was the whole gatekeeping role mm-hmm. in mathematics. Yeah. I did know that. That was something that was in the back of my head. At the University of Chicago, most of the research that was being done there was very quantitative. Um, I was studying under Tony Brake and Larry Hedges, who were creating hierarchical linear modeling. We had people that were doing Roche analysis. We had So I, I was taking a lot of statistics. I was being prepared to do work that was very quantitative. Mm-hmm. My advisor, Susan Stodolsky, um, had a research project that was looking at the organizations of schooling and math in particular, and had a colleague, Pam Grossman, at Stanford. Mm-hmm. University who was mm-hmm. doing work in English education and she was kind of looking across this. But I would feel I feel like a lot of what was being supported were these very quantitative analyses. We were even at that time I was just crunching a lot of numbers for her. Yeah. And we were trying to look for some trends. So but then that took me to her project was looking at different high schools 
And it allowed me, my research question was really around issues of tracking. Like mm-hmm. What is it about tracking that helps kids who wouldn't traditionally, how, how are kids affected by tracking was really kind of my original question. Yeah. But what I found in these um, analyses of these math departments across the United States was that it was a lot more complex than that. There were places that were tracking that still were doing well with their kids in terms of getting lots of kids to go on and take advanced math. They mm-hmm. were places that didn't track but didn't necessarily get kids to do the kinds of things that, that um, they were hoping for or that I think as a nation we hope for in terms of everybody being supported to take advanced mathematics. So that really ended up helping guide my research question into what is it about the organization of mm-hmm. t- math teachers that creates the kind of context for students to learn. So if it's not these kind of singular policies, like either track or don't track, Mm -hmm. um, and it's more about what happens in terms of the kinds of courses that are offered, the kinds of the ways that teachers interact with students, interact with each other as colleagues, and how does all of that kind of as a a cluster of things come together to help support uh, students to take higher levels of mathematics that ended up surprising me, I guess, to a certain extent, because it originally had gone in thinking, this is all about tracking. Hmm. Right now at, the, at Mizzou, I'm teaching a course on the history of mathematics curriculum, and tracking has been an issue for 80, 90 years at least. Yeah. But it's just interesting to hear you talk about it, because so much of it, the way when we've been looking at these major reports and different uh, perspectives from the different decades... It rarely goes beyond just the issue of tracking or not tracking. What are the downsides of tracking? Um, should we track? Should we not track? And it just seems like the way that you're talking about it is a whole different level of saying we really need to think about some broader issues. And tracking might have some benefits, but there's a wrong way to do tracking. And not tracking might have some great outcomes, but there's also poor ways to not track. Right. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think if I had to come down on one side or another, though, I still would feel like the tracking is not helping us in in many. It's it's keeping us from being, I think people can teach well in spite of tracking. I'm not sure mm-hmm. that tracking always helps people yeah. teach well, I guess is, is the point. Yeah, and it seems like with tracking, it's too easy to slip into the negative sides of it or the, the negative outcomes from it. It's just so too enticing once you're doing this separation and you have some students going this way and other students going that way and the messages that that sends. It seems like it would be so hard to overcome that negative gravity. Right. The thing that was interesting, though, is that in doing those studies, because I was using hierarchical linear modeling, I was able to show we tracked kids from 7th grade to 12th grade and were able to show that there were some schools that were clearly having an effect mm-hmm. on students. So where those where the kids had similar peers who were performing in a particular ways when they went into the high school level, some kids either had gains in mathematics growth in terms of where they were in what year, and then there were kids who had, you know, very little gains, and then some kids who actually had no gains or, you know, went backwards, and you could say there was something about that context effect, and when we tried to look at it from the single individual teacher, because we could track kids within teachers within schools, Mm -hmm. um, we saw also that it wasn't necessarily even just a single teacher, but that Mm -hmm. it was something that was, you know, a little bit more aggregate, and that seemed to be more around the math department. Mm -hmm. So that led you then to um, taking a position at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where you've been ever since. Mm-hmm. But going back to your first few years on the faculty there at Illinois, what were your ideas that, you know, after your dissertation and after grad school, what were the ideas that you ran with in your scholarship? So out of the dissertation study, when I was able to identify that there were particular characteristics of math departments um, that seemed to be supporting students to do well, then I felt like, okay, I've kind of got this 
broad strokes view. And now I want to go look at some, go dig deep into mm-hmm. some individual places. So, for mm-hmm. example, there was a school in Chicago that I studied for a year and a half and just was there all the time observing, interviewing the students, helping mm-hmm. teach, watching what was happening on a more kind of organic and, and, yeah, just being able to attend to more of the complexity rather than just the um, the correlations that, that I had seen from earlier. Mm-hmm. And I was really trying to understand not just what makes this place good, but also how did this place get built? Mm. Like, what's the history of this? Like, what? how did these people come together and decide that they were going to support you know, a lot of um, Latino or first generation um, or black or low income students to go on and take calculus when so many other schools across the United States either don't believe kids can do that or just don't end up creating the context where they do do that. Mm -hmm. And what was it about this place? And was there something I was going to learn from looking at one single case Mm -hmm. more deeply that I didn't understand when I was looking at several cases because across the United States, um, having nine schools to look at allowed mm-hmm. me to see some patterns and not just say, oh, this is a boutique school. This is one school that did this one thing. Mm-hmm. But then going and looking deeper at one school mm-hmm. allowed me to see it more up close. Yeah. I think that brings us to 2002, which um, you have a couple articles that were, were published that year that have been very highly cited and very influential in the field. One of them was in the American Educational Research Journal from ARA, and that one was on Beyond Essentialism. And you also had a mathematical thinking and learning piece, which was on a new equity research agenda. So just talk to us about 2002, those pieces coming out, and what your thinking was and the the kind of larger message that you had at that time. Mm -hmm. So I think coming out of that one math department that I was studying, uh, there were a number of things that they were doing that felt like, again, like the earlier work I had been doing in tracking, where it felt like a lot of people think, it's tracking or not tracking, I felt like there was things they were doing in their math department that we weren't studying. So, for example, one thing that seemed like they were attending to was students' language. But they weren't attending to language in the ways that a lot of the literature was asking us as researchers or as teachers to attend to language. It wasn't language in the sense of vocabulary and highlighting the difficulty of students who have to decode what a math problem is asking of them. There were things about language that they attended to that really supported the students' identities. So, mm. for example, the entire math department, there was only one teacher on the staff who was uh, Spanish-speaking. But he spoke Spanish from a kind of colloquial perspective because he grew up speaking it but wasn't necessarily um, taught to read and write and, and to express more academic things in that way. And he certainly did not learn mathematics in Spanish. Okay. So what I saw these teachers doing was not just allowing students to use mathematics when they were discussing problems, but recognizing that it wasn't a proficiency-oriented thing. So oftentimes as teachers, we may think, oh, a student is using Spanish to discuss this problem because their facility with English isn't as good. Mm -hmm. But what they noticed was that students were speaking Spanish who didn't, quote, have to speak Spanish because in some ways this helped maintain their identities. Mm -hmm. They would be in a group of kids who other kids were like them, and they would code switch. In the middle of the sentence, they would start talking about something else, but they would understand the problem. And it was very natural for them because they were with others who spoke Spanish to kind of assert that that aspect of their identity. And it Mm -hmm. wasn't this cognitive or a proficiency oriented thing. It was a a Mm -hmm. social thing of Mm -hmm. affirming who I am. I can do mathematics in my language. I can do, this is a very natural thing for me to do. I can be my whole person. I can be myself. I can be myself. And be doing math and be in, in a math community. Yes. So again, um, that that piece, the Beyond Essentialism, was really trying to get at the complexity that moved beyond just how do we support 
students who we may who we may think of are English learners. And at this point, by high school, many students who may have been more recent immigrants and have developed fluency in English, by the time they get to high school, they, any kind of a program that they would have been in to have support wouldn't necessarily tell you. So, for example, the students that were in that class that were speaking Spanish, some of them were in the honors English class. They were in mm -hmm. that. So it wasn't something that, mm -hmm. that you could walk into the classroom and say, oh, yeah, Luis... That was totally normal that he would speak Spanish. There were students who surprised the teachers. Mm -hmm. And they also thought about their role as teachers in terms of in what way, how do they negotiate a culture of a classroom that allows for that when not everybody is Spanish speaking. Mm -hmm. So there are students in the class who are monolingual English speakers. There are students who are Latinos who don't speak Spanish. There were students who were black who knew no Spanish. There were, And so how do you mm -hmm. both allow for some students to do that when mm -hmm. other people sitting at their table may not? And right. so for me, it was that phenomenon that I was, that was mm -hmm. one small piece of what happened in that math department that again, got it more of that complexity mm -hmm. of teaching. And just even so having teachers that are thinking about all of those dynamics that you're describing rather than teachers who just think, I need to help all the students be able to speak and write the English mathematics instead of just viewing it in that simplistic kind of direct way. They're viewing it as, wow, there's all these social dynamics, there's identity dynamics, and then there is the mathematics as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then in the mathematical thinking and learning, you talked about a new equity research agenda. So is that trying to follow up on some of those same ideas or were there some other dynamics to the new agenda that you were proposing? So the new agenda, it's funny because when I look back at the, that piece, I remember writing that so clearly and thinking like, who the heck am I to get to decide what equity is? Mm -hmm. um, I remembered writing this three-part definition and feeling like, you know, I remember feeling frustrated that it felt like at that moment we were writing a lot about equity and nobody was defining it or few people were defining it. And I mm -hmm. wasn't finding an adequate definition. So that's what caused me to feel like I wanted to write it. Mm -hmm. I felt like so much of what was being written about was being written about from this perspective of reform mathematics versus traditional mathematics and mm -hmm. that that was the big fight that people were having. And I felt mm -hmm. like it's especially related to these identity issues that were happening in this math department. It's about so much more than that. Like even if teachers are using reform mathematics, that's not enough if they're not also attending to some of these identity issues that the teachers I was looking at were or um, organizing themselves in ways that were helping professional develop each other. So when I wrote that piece, for me, I was trying to say to colleagues, to the discipline, that we need to move beyond this idea of traditional versus reform and ask ourselves, when do we get this critical perspective? When do we care about, and that really helped me develop these four dimensions of learning that I've been talking about, which is access, achievement, identity, and power, and saying, you know, so much of what we write about in equity still has this deficit view of kids that it's all about opening doors, it's all about access, opportunity to learn, and then their scores on achievement tests or what whether they can continue on in the math pipeline. And we never really ask, do kids get to be themselves mm. when they're in math classrooms? Yeah. And so this other dimension or this other axis of, of the critical axis being issues of identity and power, I felt like we weren't really addressing as much in our field. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that critical perspective that some researchers were focusing on was mm -hmm. where we needed to go. That we need, that, that the more important distinction for me was not reform versus traditional, but was critical versus mainstream or critical mm -hmm. versus dominant. Mm -hmm. And that in the public space and in much of what was being written in the math education journals, mm -hmm. when we talked about equity, it was about more, it was all about access and achievement and closing the achievement gap. And it was not thinking about some of this more complex notions of identity and power. And I give an example of that in the sense that 
even though many people were writing about equity and saying it was important for if we want to address justice, it was important for more students to be able to go into the field, to have the opportunities to have high quality teachers, to all these kinds of things. It still was talking about it from a kind of deficit perspective, like everyone needs math in their world. Like when you have math, mm-hmm. you're going to have better economic opportunities for jobs. You're going to have uh, you're going to be able to problem solve better in your life. You're going to be able to. There was all these things that seemed like you need math. And mm-hmm. you'll be better. Mm-hmm. And nobody was saying, wait, maybe math needs people. Mm-hmm. Even when we said we want more women, more people of color, other kinds of people to enter math that haven't historically, we still were writing it from the point of view that because they would benefit. And instead, if we think about it as if those people went into mathematics, mm-hmm. they would ask very different questions about the world using mathematics. And mm-hmm. we know, for example, from times of war, when men have left their chemistry labs, um, and women have taken over. They've asked different questions and new forms of chemistry have, have mm-hmm. developed. Mm-hmm. So we have that same phenomenon that if we have different kinds of people coming into our field, mm-hmm. that might actually change mathematics. That might help make it be more vibrant, more help it to grow and see different, we would develop different areas that maybe we wouldn't in the past. Rather than thinking, so it'd be like, you know, turning that thing on its head. Mm-hmm. It's not just that people need math, it's that math needs people. Yeah, I'm kind of, I mean, in my mind, I'm processing what you're talking about with two metaphors. The first was kind of the metaphor of we have a club and we want to let you in, but you need to like say our secret password and you need to kind of act like we act in this club. Yeah. And that's where you're sort of saying like it's not just about opening the access for them to come, it should actually be about them being themselves when they join in. The other metaphor that I'm kind of having is the like what you were talking about just now, which is we're selling math to other people and it's a product that they need. The product is already finalized and it's good. <laughs> just people need to buy it or they need to get it. And you're, you sort of are, this last thing you were talking about was saying that actually the product of mathematics needs more people. It needs their perspectives and their ideas involved. And it actually reminds me of a blog online. I might be able to find the okay. link to it that is, was talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and talking about white privilege. So this is beyond mathematics now. This is just in society in general. A lot of white people, myself being a white person, really view it as, oh, you know, we want people of color to feel welcome or to have a place in society. But very few white people, this blogger was arguing, very few white people actually see themselves as impoverished because they don't have those connections with people of color and with their culture and understanding their perspectives. Mm -hmm. It's more kind of like a lot of white people, they might recognize, you know, the hardships and they might recognize some of the challenges of being a person of color as a minority in society, but they don't recognize that the white culture is actually missing out because they don't get those perspectives and they don't get to see things from that side. And that actually everybody would be richer if there was a chance to see other perspectives, interact with other perspectives, not to all coalesce into one melting pot, but to actually just have that exposure and awareness of other perspectives. I hadn't yet, but you're making me kind of connect that broader idea to mathematics education. And it's not just bringing math to underrepresented groups, but it's actually bringing those underrepresented groups and all their resources and the ways in which, you know, they can offer things to us Mm -hmm. overall. Absolutely. My guest is Rochelle Gutierrez from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She's in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction. Also, she's affiliated with the Department of Latina and Latino Studies. And I want to ask you about uh, an interesting experience that you got to have in 2004-2005 when you were a Fulbright Scholar. So what were some of your most potent memories from that Fulbright Scholarship? 
so when I was in Zacatecas, Mexico, I was um, studying two secundarias. They were, um, this, these are for grades seven to nine. That's how it gets broken up. Okay. Um, I was interested in that level because um, that was before preparatoria where um, some students choose to go into specific kinds of high schools. And I really mm. wanted the kind of comprehensive experience. I chose to go there because out of that high school I had studied in Chicago, there were a lot of students who were recent immigrant from Mexico who were performing so well and who knew algorithms and other ways of doing things that kids in our class did that classes I was studying didn't know and I was trying to figure out what is it that they're doing in Mexico that's preparing these kids so well that we we don't seem to understand hmm. because that's not the view we tend to get in the United States is that Mexico is ahead or is more rigorous or something like that then right. we tend to get this idea that it, we should be following uh, Singapore math or lesson study or it all comes from Asia mm-hmm. so um, one of the one of my one of my memories was, uh, so I studied these two different uh, math departments, again, with the same focus that these were. One place um, had gotten a lot of kids to uh, go and do math olympiads, and they had a really high pass rate of their courses in terms of it's, the system works differently. But that that was kind of saying almost along the lines of how we would say more kids are taking higher levels of math. Mm-hmm. And another school that, that didn't have that. And I was trying to understand a little bit contextually there what, again, what got this one math department to develop what they did and get the success they did with those kids. And at one point when I was in that more successful school, kids take notebooks. They have, they have their notebooks. They're all, um, it's graph paper. Every page is numbered. You don't rip anything out. Everything mm-hmm. is turned in. It's kind of like a, um, a journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything gets recorded. And in, in Mexico, the way the classrooms I studied, at least, I don't want to speak for all of Mexico or even all of Zacatecas, but I looked at several classrooms before, or several schools before I chose these two, so I know it wasn't just these two. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that kids take their notes is very disciplined. So you have a, a lapicera, which it has your uh, red pencil, a, a blue pencil, a black pen, a red pen, whiteout, uh, a compass. A, I mean, everything is very, very precise. Mm-hmm. And you try to make, leave that record in your notebook in that way. So I remember this one day when I was writing up my notes and there was a girl who was copying a page from another notebook that was next to her and she was copying it out and I thought she was I assumed she was cheating that she mm-hmm. had somebody else's notebook mm-hmm. and that she was trying to steal the answers for the homework because the teacher was getting ready to come around and check notebooks is what uh-huh. she was doing I said to her you know um, this probably is not in long term this is not to your benefit for you to copy because you're not really going to understand the work that you're going to be held accountable for later on it may mm-hmm. feel like it's the easy thing to do right now and it can help mm-hmm. your grade or whatever and she just looked at me like why are you telling me this? And she's like, no, this is my work. And I was like, I, I can see it's not your work. You're copying from one notebook to another notebook. And then she literally opened the notebook, showed me the friends, and they were both her notebook. One was a notebook that she felt like she couldn't take as neatly. Mm-hmm. So she was copying it into one to make it more neat. The final draft. But yeah. <laughs> and here I was with my presumptions, my mm-hmm. Western perspective of like, this is, you know, a kid must be cheating because mm-hmm. they're copying from another notebook rather than that's mm-hmm. how serious mm-hmm. people took note taking. Wow. And I thought, wow, we don't take notes that precisely in the United States. Mm-hmm. When teachers would be up at the board, they would, uh, they would be writing and writing and nobody would take a single note. Everyone would just be sitting and listening. Um, and then at one point, the teacher would say, okay, now you can now you can copy. And they would copy down whatever was. And I thought, wow, I wonder what that does for us in terms of reflection when we have mm-hmm. kids madly copying stuff as we're going right. with no time to think about what are they writing down. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were all these kind of juxtapositions mm-hmm. of like, I, I liken it to clothing. I think about how I like to wear a lot of tailored clothing. And um, I find a lot of times that... 
our our image to the rest of the world is that the people in the United States dress very sloppily. Mm-hmm. We have kind of we're fine with t-shirts and mm-hmm. sweats and mm-hmm. you know whatever. You go you go to other places and people are wearing pretty tailored clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like that metaphor of like wow we are so sloppy and like so <laughs> like not organized or anything. I think about our math classrooms and I think mm-hmm. how often teachers use the chalkboard as almost like scratch paper. Like mm-hmm. I'm writing this thing mm-hmm. and then I'm writing this thing over here and students are coming up to board and they're writing things and, and there's nothing like sacred about it. It's at the mm-hmm. end, you look at the board and you're thinking, is that a good record of what we did today? Like, yeah. how do you even make sense of that? What if a kid, you know, was just spaced out for five minutes and then they look back at the board and saw something? Would they would yeah. they actually understand it? Yeah. You're touching on some things I've been thinking about for a while. I had a big discussion with Justin Dimmel, who's at the University of Maine now, and we talked about note-taking and we were both kind of opposed to, we didn't have solid evidence on this. I think Justin knew of some research in another area okay. about note-taking. But we just feel like it's so counterproductive to try to copy things down literally as they're happening because that means mentally you're focusing on on what you're writing down instead of actually just processing the idea. So I think the key thing you said with Mexico was that first they're listening and they're trying to comprehend or they're being an active listener and then they're going to encode it, you know, as a sort of second step. So now you're processing it a second time and you're kind of refining it um, and being very precise in what you're deciding to write down but you're not just trying to copy it as the teacher is speaking, because in that sense, you're just a stenographer. You're not really a thinker. Um, No knock on stenographers. But but the other thing, too, is the board space. Um, This has been something I've been trying to drum up support here from our doc students at Mizzou to write an article about board space, because from observing student teachers or from when I've done research in classrooms, it's one thing I've just sort of tuned in on is like, wow, the board space, it seems like it could have been more strategic or it seems like you could have arranged something so that the spatial organization was helping the learning rather than just where you were standing and you happened to put it up there. Right, yeah. right. The other thing that I, I thought was really fascinating was how um, how streamlined things are written down in, in the pages and where we in the United States focus a lot on show your work. Every single thing has to be written down. Even the way mm-hmm. we write long division, everything has to be written and you write the yeah. number underneath it, you subtract, you get it, you know, and you look in Mexico in the classrooms I was studying at least and they, they feel like, why would you do that? You'd have to be a baby to not be able to process that in your brain. Like, you really have to write that down to subtract it. Can't you just, like, write with the, So there was a lot more mental math that was expected. Mm-hmm. And so they feel like when they go to U.S. classrooms and then people are asking them, you have to write it in this way, they don't feel like... I mean, what's interesting is that I think we can think, as a teacher who's not aware of or familiar with the different ways that people process mathematics in other countries, other algorithms they use, other representations that they use. When students do things in our classrooms, we could think they're just resisting or they don't really understand. It's, that's not fully enough explained what, what they were doing. And yet, from their perspective, they feel like, if I write all this stuff down, this makes me look dumb. Like, mm-hmm. I, like I couldn't handle processing this in my brain and I have to put it all down on the page. Mm-hmm. There's an example that I have. There's a, a piece that came out um, just this last year called um, in a mathematics teacher that's mm-hmm. called Ola, listening to mathematics students. And I describe oh, an yeah. algorithm that students use there and the ways that teachers can use notebooks more mm-hmm. like what we mm-hmm. were talking about. And again, when I would look at students' work and I would try to make sense of it, I would just see an X on the page with a number on top, a number on the bottom, a number on the left, and a number on the right, and then a line through it. And Mm -hmm. for a U.S. teacher, you would look at that and say, they didn't really know what they were doing, then they crossed it out. When Mm -hmm. that's actually how you check 
Hmm. Whether you're doing, if you're doing a, um, you're multiplying two multi-digit numbers, that's how you would check it. And it's actually based on number theory hmm. and modular arithmetic. So again, there's all these, that what I was seeing was that oftentimes the narrative that gets written about why immigrant students or why Latinos might not do well in a math classroom, it's about processing language, right? Mm-hmm. It's this vocabulary mismatch thing, not any about the identity. And what I was seeing for these students is like, wow, for them, it's not even about the content is so difficult. Much of the content that they were covering there, we don't even get to until much later years. Mm-hmm. And when they come to U.S. classrooms, they're trying to make sense of the cultural aspect. Like, yeah. wh- when am I supposed to write anything down? Yeah. When am I supposed to? So it's not even things we're attending to. We just are assuming, oh, the language is so difficult for them. Yeah. They don't understand the English, so they're trying to mm. process it when it's like... So we have all these conventions. Yes. Yeah. Um, like educational conventions, not just mathematical conventions. Like how many points I'm going to take off if you don't write a certain step. That would be a lot to learn and process. And if the teacher doesn't even realize that that's where the issue is, then the teacher might be trying to help in, a, in the wrong way. Yes. They might be trying to help on, oh, the problem, but it's like, no, I'm just trying to learn these conventions that you have <laughs> for where you're going to take points off and what you're going to expect me to write down. Right, right. Yeah, and I think the conversation about showing your work is a very common one in math education. And I think the you know the goal for showing your work is so that the teacher can see the thinking or that people can see the thinking that happened. But I think what happens a lot of times is that the fact that the ultimate goal is to see the thinking is lost and it actually just becomes about the work and I'm going to take points off for how you showed the work or not. So the fact that it's supposed to be a stepping stone to see thinking is lost and and the showing work becomes the thing itself instead of a means to the end. And so for the immigrant students, they might be thinking, well, I understand I want to make sure you can see what I did and see my work, but I didn't realize that you have all these conventions and very technical things that you're expecting. And I think if we all kind of keep in mind that the goal is to see the mathematical thinking, and we do all care about mathematical thinking, but to remember that showing work is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I want to move ahead a little bit sure. to um, some interesting stuff that happened that you were involved in uh, with the Journal for Research in Mathematics Education. So you had a debate that happened in the pages of Jeremy about gap gazing. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years later, you edited a special issue that was on equity. And it was first available online, and then it later appeared in a print issue of Jeremy. So I just want to open it up to that experience that you had where you were basically bringing some important debates or some important ideas that people were grappling with and you were putting them into the pages of Jeremy. And what was that experience like and what were those main ideas that came out of those articles? So the dialogue piece that I created with um, Sarah Lubienski came out of kind of our, our, we had a lot of things that we agreed with with each other, but then when I used a term about gap gazing, what that felt like for her, who was somebody who was doing achievement related research like this is she felt like this was something that was really important that we attend to these achievement gaps because if we don't um, then maybe uh, some students aren't being served well and while I while I agreed with that I felt like again that that notion of the the focus on the achievement gap only attended to that one axis that access and achievement part and didn't attend to the identity and power stuff Mm -hmm. so for me i think what i wanted readers to recognize was that those four dimensions that there was something more that we were missing and also that idea of windows and mirrors Mm -hmm. so the idea of windows and mirrors is that we don't do social justice mathematics lessons only for Chicano students or for black students or for, you know, a student that we think is our target audience for being historically marginalized because that's going to, like, 
motivate them to want to do mathematics is going to be a good hook for why they should actually do these kinds of things in my classroom. We do it because kids need windows and mirrors, and all kids need those. So if I'm a classroom teacher and I'm trying to think about social justice mathematics, for example, often what gets related in the literature is how powerful this can be for kids who have been historically marginalized. Mm -hmm. And so then it leaves teachers with the question of, well, if I've got a group of suburban white kids, like, so I basically shouldn't do social justice math lessons, right? Because this isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. what its purpose is. But I would argue that and something like that, like a social justice math lesson, can be a window and a mirror at the same time, depending Mm -hmm. on who the kids are. So if we're keeping track of what's your likelihood of being asked to leave standing on a street corner in front of your high school based on whether you're, you know, brown or white or or whatever, how many people need to be gathering before you're asked by your school's Mm -hmm. um, police officer to, you know, disperse, what's the likelihood of that happening based on different racial representations, Mm -hmm. that kind of a math activity is going to be a mirror to students who feel like that happens to me all the time. I I completely know that experience Mm -hmm. and I have a lot of contextual knowledge that I can draw from in trying to theorize which questions we would ask and what probabilities we would try to construct. For somebody who's who's white who's maybe never even thought about the fact that they could stand on street corners with all their friends and nobody pushes them to disperse, Mm -hmm. that now becomes a window onto another world. Mm -hmm. Now, they're both doing the same kinds of mathematics, but what that means for them is something very different. And I feel like what often gets missed in these kind of more critical perspectives, so going back to the 2002 article, Mm -hmm. the distinction not between reform and traditional, but between critical and dominant, Mm -hmm. that people somehow get left with this critical stuff needs to be done with target audiences and not that this would be good for everybody. And also that um, in the gap gazing piece, recognizing that there are many kinds of gaps that we could study that we don't. Mm-hmm. And so what's the story that we tell and what, what messages basically do we leave researchers and teachers with, just like the social justice math thing? What message do we give to teachers and students when the context that we talk about it is all in one way? Mm. And the equity special issue, I know that was probably a large undertaking, and you kind of headed that ship. So what did you see as kind of the larger idea or the larger impact that that issue had, and did it have the impact that you kind of hoped that it would? I I mean, I don't know if it's had the impact. The goal was for it not to be an equity issue, but for it to be an issue about identity and power, and that's primarily what we wrote about. So when Mm -hmm. we wrote our criteria for what would get accepted into the journal, Mm -hmm. it was not around issues of equity. It was around identity and power for Mm -hmm. that very reason that we felt like so much of what had been kind of the whole agenda around equity had been co-opted by mainstream researchers who were only looking at access and achievement ideas. And we felt like there's Mm -hmm. a lot, a lot of research out there. So let's move beyond that Mm -hmm. and really hone in and say, what do we understand about this other stuff, the identity Mm -hmm. and power? One thing I feel strongly that I feel very good about was it was really important for me. If you read anything that I write, I position myself in my work. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm fully there. I talk about who I am. I talk about why I have the perspective I do. And I felt like it's interesting that we don't do that in mathematics education, that Mm -hmm. we don't say who we are. Mm -hmm. And in other fields, people do that. So Mm -hmm. one criteria was that anything that got published in that journal 
the author or yeah. authors would have to position themselves and say who they mm. are and how that influenced what they decided to study and how they actually studied it. Mm. So that's one thing that I felt like we have left a written record for other people yeah. who want to say, well, how do you do this, this in is, that Here's some examples of what it looks like Here to are do examples that. of different people mm-hmm. doing this. The other thing that was really important was helping people. We have uh, three dialogue pieces mm-hmm. in there. Again, partly after people found the dialogue piece that I had done with Sarah Lubienski to be helpful. I know that the Michael Apple dialogue piece... Mm-hmm. Uh, a while ago was also really helpful for people. And I think when you can listen in on somebody else's dialogue, you find it resonates with parts of you, and it's almost like you can enter into that easier than if it's just a scripted article. Mm -hmm. So the three dialogue pieces we had, one was about language, one was about positioning yourself in research, and one was about racism. And we felt like we were having these conversations as an editorial board about the kind of the, the mismatch between the kind of conceptions we were thinking about when we talk about identity and power and the kind of submissions we were getting and how people were thinking about identity and power and how we felt like the ways that other that many people were thinking about identity and power in our field were fairly superficial. And so they ended up being kind of demographic markers. I'm studying this classroom of black students and blah, blah, blah. And then throughout the whole rest of the analysis, you, could, it, you there's nothing about blackness throughout the rest of the paper. And at the very end, maybe there's recommendations for other classrooms of black students, but it, it really wasn't integral to the work. And so we felt very strongly that having these these three dialogue pieces would help educate people about kind of the... We, we basically just taped ourselves having conversation, like mm-hmm. what you're doing, and uh, then edited it just you know mm-hmm. a bit. Mm-hmm. So people who might be interested in thinking about how did an editorial panel think about these issues, those would be three pieces to go mm. and read. Yeah. Jumping to present day, I want to ask you, what is on your mind right now? What are you currently working on or thinking about as you continue this line of work? Well, since 2009, so I, I felt like you know I spent about 15 years of studying effective math departments, both in the United States and in Mexico, and mm-hmm. going and trying to understand like how do you build places like this. And when I looked at what was the nature of the work that teachers were doing in those spaces, again, it was so much more complex than I felt like we were understanding or presenting teaching for teachers. And it felt like a lot of the work that that these departments were doing was navigating the politics Mm. and that that wasn't being written about. That was maybe seen as something, you know, separate or different or not really integral to teaching mathematics. Mm -hmm. And so when I looked at the kinds of models that we had for what's the knowledge basis that teachers need, it was still around content and pedagogy and students. And there really wasn't anything about this other space of all the politics that are going on. And that was, you know, that was back when I was studying that math department, that was back in 1998, 1999. So it wasn't, it didn't have the same kind of high stakes education feel as we do today. Mm-hmm. But so then I, I, I got an NSF grant to support uh, support the development of teachers, and I said, well, what if we took this seriously? What if we decided we actually wanted to try to have this fourth knowledge base, this political mm-hmm. knowledge, and we wanted to try to get teachers to be prepared for teaching in that way? What would that look like? What kind of actual knowledge would people need? What kind of stances could people develop? What kinds of things would you have? What activities would you have to do in your teacher education program to make that happen? Yeah. And so things like uh, rehearsals for the politics of teaching. There's mm-hmm. an activity that I do that's called In My Shoes that actually, in the same way that you would do like a peer teaching lesson where you would teach to a bunch of people and then you would debrief afterwards how mm-hmm. the teaching go and you'd be trying to pull in particular uh you know, discursive moves in your teaching or whatever, I had developed activities where we would have our pre-service teachers not only learn about like social justice mathematics teaching and 
you know, racism in society and structural and organizational things about math departments um, and more creative ways of doing mathematics, but also what are some of the things that you are likely to face in your teaching if you get a, a racist comment from a colleague, if you get a new policy that's coming down that's going to change things that you think, but wait, this is the very thing we think is making our, ourselves successful with, this, mm-hmm. with, this, with these students. Um, how are you going to deal with all of that? And so part of that grant was developing structures and opportunities for the students to think about teaching in a different way. Much of what gets written about in teaching, what it means to be a professional, is all externally defined. So it's things like how well you score on the Danielson framework, how well your kids do on the park test, um, maybe how many math degrees or, or courses you've taken. But we don't get this holistic sense of what it means to be a professional that relates at all to negotiating these politics. Mm-hmm. And I wanted the teachers we were preparing to recognize that what it means to be a professional is also to be engaging in all of that stuff. And whether mm-hmm. it's through educational blogs or whether it's through you know the different ways that you could pick this stuff up, there's people out there who are doing it and doing it better than we are, and mm-hmm. we need to learn from those people. Mm-hmm. So I started using this term. It actually came from my family because having grown up in an activist family, I think there were just things that were going on I was exposed to, but there was this term called creative insubordination. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started using it in the grant And um, I remember in one research meeting, we were sitting there, and one of my doctoral students said, so which paper did you write where you talked about this creative insubordination? And I said, oh, I've never written about this before. And she (laughs) said, well, where'd you get the term? And I was like, I don't know. I just know it from growing up. And I kind of looked at them like, you guys don't know this term. It felt like a term like, Mm -hmm. I mean, like even like the play the game, change the game. That's not something I made up. It's just something that I've heard said, and I feel Mm -hmm. like it's a useful thing. So then we went through the literature and said, well, has anybody written about this? Like now we're, we're like, who's written about this? And it was people who had written about principles who it was a principal leadership uh, research in the like early 90s and who were looking at principals in, in Chicago, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. who had decided to stand up to kind of district-wide initiatives that were not the things they wanted to do in their school. And so then they just decided to do something that was called creative insubordination, where mm-hmm. basically it's where you're, you're bending the rules to hold yourself to a higher ethical standard because mm-hmm. you don't feel like following what you're being told to do mm-hmm. is the right thing. We realized that that was pretty much what we were doing with teachers, was trying to help them think about how do you, rather than having these external standards of what it means to be a professional, how do you create your own internal standard and hold Mm -hmm. yourself to a higher ethical practice? And so there's something that that we used in the grant. Um, I used to say, um, you know, we we come back to the mirror test. Mm -hmm. And the mirror test is you just need to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say every day that you're doing what you said you were going to do when you went into this field. And if you're not... What are you going to do about that? Hmm. And so, for example, I have a teacher who, it was her second year of teaching, and she got evaluated on the Danielson, and she got, like, distinguished in, like, all these different categories, and they told her she doesn't have to be evaluated for another five years or something. And she came to me, and she said, I know I'm not doing well. I don't know how I got distinguished on relating to families and parents. But she's like, I have so much more work to do in this, mm-hmm. and I know I'm not good enough on this. So it was interesting because for her, it was her own mirror test that was yeah. saying, I'm still not the teacher I want to be and who's to, and there she was saying and what now they're just not going to evaluate me for for, for five <laughs> years that just felt wrong so the, the work I've been doing really since 2009 has been trying to theorize this idea of creative insubordination what does it mean for teachers to have a different grounding point for thinking of themselves as professionals what kind of knowledge and, and activities and things and, and collective experiences are needed for people to develop this way of thinking about things and then how well 
does it work? Like when people mm-hmm. go into the field, how well are they able to bend the rules and mm-hmm. advocate for their students? What are the kinds of things that they've done earlier in their career? What is We saw evidence of people doing this is still in student teaching. Yeah. So what what got those people to take risks? What got mm-hmm. the people who who got the very same exposure, mm-hmm. almost like raising a family. You know, you've got three kids you're raising, you do the exact same things, and two of them are this way and one of them's that way. And you think, wait, you, you sat at the dinner table with us every mm-hmm. night. We had those same conversations. How are you mm-hmm. so different from... So trying to mm-hmm. understand um, that phenomenon in terms of who individuals are and in what way do they conceptualize for themselves what this act of creative insubordination means and why do some people take risks and others don't? Or mm-hmm. why do people take risks strategically because the whole notion of creative insubordination is that you don't just go along with what you're being at with the status quo Mm -hmm. but you do it creatively because you're not you don't want to just get fired i mean Mm -hmm. it's very easy Mm -hmm. to just not go along but yeah it's not very productive to just (laughs) do that get fired and now you can't change anything yeah (laughs) so and if people are interested in the political knowledge for teaching you make a case for that in an essay that you had in the journal of urban mathematics education so i'll put that reference in the comments for this episode as well My guest is Rochelle Gutierrez from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and she was the 2011 Excellence in Research Award winner from the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators. But now I want to ask you if you were not doing mathematics education at all. Um, And so go back to that that fortuitous moment when you decided to abandon the biology medical (laughs) stuff and went to math ed. What would you be doing instead of math ed? And you don't have to say biology or medicine. It could be, you know, anything fantastical that you can imagine as an alternative career. Well, I think about that moment when I realized that in all my free time, I was tutoring other people in math and and things like that that helped solidify for me, like, this really is what I love to do. This is what I do in my free time. That Mm -hmm. helped me make that move. I think if I had to leave math education, what I do in my free time, I play a lot with... um, (laughs) I do a lot of art-based things, like I take old clothing and I turn them into other kinds of things. Mm. Um, I make jewelry. I do, but it's all very mathematically based. I mean, there's mm. things that I feel like I do that um, I would probably be some kind of a designer um, mm-hmm. using probably like 4D printing um, mm. to make clothing and to make those in ways that would. Um, reflect something about the individual person in terms of the way that it would fit their shapes. Mm. And yeah, I, there would be something about there though, that is there still have to be something about the social justice part of it that would have to be part of it because that's just <laughs> who I am. I can't imagine that there, there wouldn't yeah. be that, but maybe it would be, maybe it would be around gender issues and how women are, how we design for us and, and what that means for, um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I think it's interesting to hear you talk about that because I have definitely taken advantage of the United States kind of (laughs) slobbiness or uh, just (laughs) freedom with clothing because I basically will just wear whatever's convenient. I don't. I probably only buy clothes every four or five years and buy something. (laughs) I don't care how how well it fits or whatever. I kind of just go and I go through life not thinking about my clothing very much. But I can appreciate people that do, and especially taking an approach like you said, where it seems like it would be very creative, it'd be mathematical, but it would also be very personal, and that seems like a cool take on clothing design or design like that. Mm-hmm. So thanks so much for um, talking with us about you know your wide-spanning career, and uh, I encourage people to go find some of these things that we've mentioned if you haven't read them already. Some of these are must-reads in math education, so... I'll have the citations available, and people can also get in touch with you. Um, We'll have a link to your um, page at the University of Illinois. So thanks so much for sitting with me here and doing this. Thank you. This has been wonderful.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.